I'm always thankful uh, to and encouraged to gather with the saints, especially uh, the folks here at Grace Bible Church. The Really, the events of the past few months, uh, really since uh, the COVID pandemic has come upon us, has served to reinforce this in my heart. A recent Gallup poll shows that mental health improved for only one group of people during the coronavirus pandemic. Gallup polled a little over a thousand Americans over the age of 18 from November 5th to the 19th, and they found that only those who attended religious services weekly saw a positive change and how they rated their mental health between 2019 and 2020. In 2019, 42% of Americans who attended religious services rated their mental health as excellent, while in 2020, 46% of Americans who attended religious services weekly rated their mental health as excellent, a percentage increase of 4% points, not insignificant. For a comparison, in 2019, Americans said, this is all of Americans, said their mental health was excellent. 43% of them said their mental health was excellent. Alarmingly, in 2020, that number has dropped to 34%. We have many in our country who are struggling with mental health. Uh, I know of people personally who struggle with mental health. Uh, I know of someone specifically in my life who struggles with PTSD. They need to be in church. They need to be amongst God's people. And unfortunately and sadly, many churches are still not meeting for worship and have no plans to do so until this pandemic is declared to be over. The consequence of this may prove to be more devastating than COVID-19 itself. Let that sink in. Beloved, we must be devoted to Christ and to His people. Therefore, we must be committed to gathering in His name. And we must be found faithful to obey His commands. He knows, He alone knows what is best for us. Now this brings us to our sermon today. I have chosen this morning to preach on baptism. I have designed the sermon to remind you, the body of Christ, of the importance of being baptized. For those of you who have been been baptized as believers, I want to remind you that your baptism was your public identification with Christ. It is a glorious indication of your commitment to Him. In the words of H.A. Ironside, he says this, Baptism is simply the glad expression of a grateful heart recognizing its identity with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. Many of us look back on or to the moment when we were baptized as one of the most precious experiences we have ever known, end quote. And I have to say that I would agree with him that in my life, one of the most precious experiences I've ever known was my baptism. One of the reasons is because I was able to be baptized with my lovely bride, not at the same time, but in the same service. I want you to look back at your baptism, your own baptism in fondness and realize the importance of it. For those of you who are not Christian or who are Christians and have not been baptized, I want you to see how crucial it is to identify with Christ in the waters of baptism. Believe me, I'm not picking on anyone. I want you to recognize your need to experience this precious time. For us as a church, I want us to to understand the importance of our commitment to baptism as the body of Christ. I would argue that we must recommit ourselves to the ordinances of the church as we face an immediate future that seems so uncertain. Now, on a side note, I plan to preach both ordinances of the church, both ordinances, baptism and communion, but the Holy Spirit yesterday, as I was studying and readying this message, had other plans, so we will just look at baptism today. 
I will probably, my plan is to preach the Lord's table as part of an upcoming supper, probably in February. Let me pray for the sermon this morning and pray for the reception of it. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again and praise you this morning. Lord, I know and pray that our body, the body of Christ here listening, would understand the importance of these things. Father, I pray that I would just be your mouthpiece, that those here would understand the importance of the ordinances that you have given us as a church. This is why we would return to them and continue to remind one another of them. We thank you and praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Probably goes without saying that this past year has been incredibly challenging for our country and for the church. I've mentioned it many times. But I don't want you to misunderstand me. I am confident about the future. You know why I'm confident about the future? I'm confident about the future because I know that God will prevail. That the point of the Bible is that God wins. This much is clear. We are currently on a victory march to a time and place where Christ will reign as king. And everyone will know it. We must not only acknowledge this truth, but we must live it and we must emphasize it. As Christians, we are on the winning team. Christ is the victorious or glorious victor. And the whole world will witness this truth in the future. The whole world will bow to Him one day soon. But in the meantime, we can expect pain and sorrow. We can expect, as Christians, many trials. We may even face persecution. Beloved, as we face the future, it is my job to study Scripture and to pray for the church and for each of you and to encourage you to do the same. And it is my responsibility to warn you and to help you walk in wisdom. In last week's sermon, I outlined several challenges to the church, which I believe have come into focus during 2020. We will continue to face these challenges in the coming years and, be, and beyond because the true church, as I mentioned last week, is distinctive from the culture. You might say we are peculiar. In the church, we are ruled by the law of Christ, which is the law of love. But our culture, let me, let me say this very carefully, our culture sees the law of Christ not as a law of love, but a law of hate. Do you know why this is true? Do you know why the world sees the law of Christ as hateful? It's true because the world has values which are hostile to Christ. Therefore, the world hates Christ, and by extension, the world hates you if you follow Him. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says this in John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Let me emphasize that the world hates us. The world hates you as a Christian because the world hates your master, the Lord Jesus. The more you act according to your master's wishes, the more the world will hate you. Now, in the sermon last week, I told you that the answer to the coming trials that we see coming is our recommitment to the pillars of uh, the Grace Bible Church philosophy of ministry. That we are committed to exalting God, to expositing His Scripture, to equipping His saints, and to evangelizing the lost. Now, you might ask why that is the answer. Well, this should be our response because we believe that these pillars capture the heart of Christ for His church. Christ 
Jesus desires His church to exalt Him, to expound and explain His Word, to equip His people, and to proclaim His name to the nations. And really, church ministry at its heart can be boiled down to these four things. But sadly, many church leaders want to be loved by the world because they love what the world has to offer. Let me say that again. Many church leaders want to be loved by the world because they love what the world has to offer. They are surrendering. They're bowing to the world's demands. The problem is, mark my words, they will never bow far enough to what the world desires. The world will always want more. Sadly, some of these leaders are names which we have admired. Let me give you one clear example. Last Sunday, I mentioned racism as a challenge for the church. Some of you may have even said, I don't see it, Pastor. Well, let me show you, let me show you this, or let me tell you this. You may recall that I said that many are beginning to define racism as the disparity between white people and their darker-skinned brothers and sisters. Just last week, sadly, I saw a video by Legan Duncan where he expressed a view that racism exists within the church because of historical wrongs done. Now, I would argue that this is just another way of saying that racism is the disparity between the standing of white people and black people. In other words, in their eyes, racism has nothing to do with our current relationships and everything to do with the historical relationships between our ancestors. Specifically, Duncan said that his black friends have trouble, this is, I'm quoting him, his black friends have trouble trusting him because people like him have been doing awful things to them for 400 years. Now, beloved, let me make sure you understand. I'm not denying the awful things that have historically been done to people of color. Let me be very explicit in what I am saying. The gospel itself is the answer to these problems. Nothing more is required. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which achieves reconciliation with God and with our fellow man. Let me also be very clear. The answer is not the gospel of Jesus Christ plus racial reconciliation in the church. See the difference? The answer is the gospel. Beloved, there's two biblical problems with seeing that we need racial reconciliation as part of the church. First off, the races do not exist. They are a social construct which I would argue have been perpetuated by a Darwinian view of the world. If we have evolved, then there must of necessity be transitional forms. Check the history, if you don't believe me. Darwin and others believed the nations were of lesser forms. They were not fully evolved. Listen to this. The full title of Darwin's most famous work was this. On the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. That's the full title of his most famous work. The Bible teaches Christian different ethnicity, different cultures, the nations. But it also teaches that all mankind is made in the image of God. We are fundamentally the same, and no matter how we look. Second problem is, if you're in Christ, you're reconciled to God and to your fellow man already. If you have believed the gospel, you are already reconciled. We still have to deal with our cultural differences, but the Lord knows that. You may recall in our study of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2 and 3, it describes how our position in the heavenly places in Christ dictates our position in the church. In other words, our identity is now fully in Christ. We are no longer known according to the flesh. This was Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. 
No one is recognized according to the flesh. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In other words, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are no longer identified by the old ways. I should point out that this is the same passage where Paul goes on to say that we're reconciled to God through Christ. I should also say that I'm hopeful that Legan Duncan and others who are falling for this, they, they will see that, that they'll never be able to appease those who oppose and that they're adding to the gospel. Now, I need to make a connection to our sermon today. I told you last week that during my vacation, I thought a lot about the distinctiveness of the church in our culture. As Christians, we are called to be distinct. We are called to live peculiar lives. This starts by obeying Christ and His Word, no matter the personal cost. In Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Jesus commanded the church to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe we must start with taking this command seriously. To take this command to make disciples and baptize them seriously. You see, baptism is the public identification of our commitment to follow Christ. It is our outward commitment which points to an inward reality. You are now in Christ. You are no longer identified according to the flesh. <clears throat> in Paul's words, you've been raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. You have joined Paul in saying, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. You see, baptism is an outward, outward sign that you've done these things. The lack of obedience to the command to baptize by the church or to be baptized by the believer indicates a lack of desire to live a life which fully identifies with Christ. Now, we don't see that as clearly today, but I think what you're going to see as we go along here, that that is absolutely the truth. Listen to John MacArthur. He says this, I believe the failure to take baptism seriously in the church a failure to follow baptism biblically in the church is very likely at the root of some of the immense problems in the church because it betrays people's unfaithfulness to the simple, direct commands of the Lord, end quote. Now you might ask, why so serious? Why so serious? Why is this such a serious thing? The answer to that question is the connection between what we're seeing in the church today and what I see as the fundamental answer. You should recognize that the first century church was also called to be distinct from its culture. Incredibly distinct from its culture. And baptism was part of this distinction. You see, baptism back then wasn't the same as today in the sense that it was not easy. You really were called to give up everything. On the day of Pentecost, about 3,000 people were baptized in the city of Jerusalem. Now, what you need to understand is, is just a few weeks before this grand event, this preaching of the gospel by Peter, in which 3,000 came to, to know the Lord and were baptized in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ had been crucified as a charlatan and as a fraud. He was framed as a man who posed a threat both to Jewish religion and to Roman authority. He was crudely mocked and he was spit on. He was horrifyingly crucified as a false religious leader. He was hated and he was cursed. So, so when you signed up for baptism, you were identifying with him. You are putting your life on the line. You were giving everything up to follow Christ. 
You see in Matthew 16, 24, he said, anyone who wishes to follow after me, they let them take up their cross and follow me. They were literally taking up their cross to follow him. They were identifying with a crucified Savior. This was not to be taken lightly. A Jew who was baptized on the day of Pentecost in the name of Jesus Christ was taking an incredibly bold step. They were alienated from the culture, they were alienated from the synagogue, and they were alienated from their family. You know, it's funny, we sing the song, All I Have is Christ. The third verse goes like this, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone, and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be, my only boast is in you. The question is, though, church, are you willing to pay the ultimate ultimate price for Christ? Or is this just another pretty song that we sing, that we enjoy singing together? Do you truly believe those words? You see, for the Jew in Jerusalem and at Pentecost, the price was incredibly high. Therefore, no half-hearted convert was going to put it all on the line to be baptized. Those baptized on that day were true Christians because they were willing to pay the ultimate price. Here's a question for you. A question you ought to ponder. Would you be willing to be baptized if it meant the loss of everything? At Pentecost, 3,000 received the word and believed in Christ. 3,000 were baptized. 3,000 continued to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 3,000 continued. The cost of salvation was high, and this was exemplified by the seriousness of baptism, which caused them to be alienated from their entire culture, perhaps at the loss of their life. And this is what I want you to understand. Baptism marked them as distinct from the culture. Therefore, baptism was inseparable from salvation itself. Now, I didn't say, I didn't say that, that baptism saves you. What I said was, is that baptism, because of the high price that was being paid, baptism was inseparable from the thought of salvation itself. Let me give you a modern context. And why I believe this is so important to us as a church. Baptism marks you as part of the people who identify as being in Christ. As those in Christ, we no longer identify with any power structures in this world. Any past power structures, any present power structures, or with any future power structures. Now, I'm no prophet. So don't take up your bag of rocks, you know, to stone me. But I do see a time coming when a refusal to bow down to the recognized hierarchies of this world may truly cost you. I see a time coming where identifying with Christ in the waters of baptism may actually cost you. may cost you your job, may cost you your family, may cost you your standing in your community. Now, with this as our backdrop, let's dive into the sermon. As part of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus commanded His church to observe two ordinances. We are commanded first to baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at your text. Actually, turn to Matthew 28, 18-20. As you're doing so, I just want to remind you, we normally, 
take the time to study through a book, but there are times when it's important for us to take a step back and look at some of these things, some of these things that are so important to the church, and this is one of those times where we're taking a few Sundays to look through some issues that are of crucial importance to the church. Look at your text in Matthew 28, 18-20. This is after His resurrection, before His ascension. He says, and Jesus came, or he says, when Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now today, we're going to focus specifically on the phrase baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do so by answering a series of three questions. Now your bulletin gives four, but again, I had to, I had to drop some stuff at the, on, the, on the editing room floor. So I dropped one of the questions, and we're just going to answer three of them today. Let's look at the first question about baptism. What is it? What is it? First, let's look at the the substance of the command. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Trinity. We know this command, and and this command has been known as the Great Commission of His Church. As such, He gave the church her mission. Now, a few weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commanded his listeners. Listen, in Acts 2.38, he says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this is the command given. This particular command in Acts 2 is the command given to each individual to be baptized. So the command in Matthew 28 is to the church to go make disciples and to baptize them. The command in Acts 2 is the personal command to each individual to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned earlier, 3,000 souls came to believe that day, and they were all baptized. And this set the example for the church and for believers. The church is called to baptize all those who profess faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And everyone who does so is commanded to be baptized. Now, this is the substance of the command. Jesus commanded the church to to baptize, and He commanded each believer to be baptized. And at Pentecost, He provided this model and example to the church. Therefore, we are to follow this pattern today. Albeit, we are somewhat slower to do so, since the cost of baptism isn't as high, right? I mean, so if someone said, I believe in Christ and I want to be baptized on that day, you knew that they were being being true because of the cost that was there. Today, we don't have that high cost, or at least it doesn't seem so. But I would argue, though, that many times our slowness is just an excuse for disobedience. Jesus called us to make disciples and to baptize them just like they did on the day of Pentecost. We must take this command seriously. Now, at this point, I want us then to understand what is meant by baptism. The question is, when we talk about baptism, what are we talking about? Well, the simple definition from a physical viewpoint is this. Baptism is a ceremony by which a person is immersed or completely submerged in water. The two, the two verbs in the New Testament which affirm this simple definition, there are, two, there are two verbs in the New Testament which affirm this simple definition. Now, I want to be clear. We're only talking about the actual act or ceremony itself. We will get to the meaning in a moment. Now, The New Testament uses two verbs, as I said. One is bapto, and the other is baptizo. Bapto is only used three times in the New Testament. It always means to dip, to dip into, or to dip into dye. In Matthew, or in Luke 16, 24, 
It is used of Abraham dipping his finger into water to relieve the rich man. In John 13, 26, it is used of Jesus dipping the morsel to give it to Judas. Now, in all three cases, it means to submerge or immerse to dip into. Now, there is a second and stronger word, baptizo, which is where we get our word translated baptism or baptize. Baptizo is the verb, is used many times in the New Testament, 76 to be exact. Now, this word always means to plunge or to dip completely. It has the idea of total and complete submersion. Now, I think that this will make complete sense in a moment. The the terminology, uh, again, always means to immerse or submerge in water. Now, it is interesting, I find it interesting anyway, that this word is transliterated into English. In other words, we took the, the Greek word and we made it an English word. We basically pronounce both the same in, in both lang- or the same in both languages, but the meaning is still supplied by the Greek, its original language. Just on Friday night, I pointed out to my family a description on a chip bag in Israel. On the bag, it was the word barbecue written in Hebrew. It was literally the word barbecue in Hebrew script. Now, I thought that was the funniest thing in the world, to see the word barbecue written in Hebrew script. you got to get the idea. I mean, we're talking about script that, that most of us can't read, and you have the word barbecue. Now, I know it was nerd humor, and my family, my wife, thought I was funnier than the word. In the case of barbecue, going to, to the Hebrew, English supplies the meaning. You get the point. English supplies the meaning to the word. Barbecue means barbecue, both in English and in Hebrew. In the case of baptize, the writers of the New Testament (coughs) would have understood the meaning to be complete submersion. They They would not have recognized any other mode of baptism. In other words, you can go through the New Testament, and anywhere you find the word baptize, or Baptism, you can translate it by as immerse or submerge. And these English words will give you the correct and intended meaning. You get the point. They, the, the translators chose to use baptism or baptize as the translation, but in reality, the translation would come from the Greek meaning, which is immerse or submerge. Now, this is an incredibly important distinction for us to understand because the early church would have understand this uh, immersion as being baptism. So therefore, I would argue that this grammar gives us the proper mode of baptism immersion. Now, as you know, many Protestants sprinkle rather than immerse. But it is interesting to note that John Calvin says, and it's important that John Calvin said this because he was Presbyterian, or the Presbyterians would look to him. He said this, The word baptize means to immerse. It is certain that immersion was the practice of the early church. In his Institutes of Christian Religion, he states, These things, Washing away of sins, sharing in Christ's death, and being united to Christ. That's what I said. Baptism shows that we are united to Christ, that we are in Christ. He says this, I say He performs for our soul within as truly as surely we see our body outwardly cleansed, submerged, and surrounded by water. What he is saying there is that the picture of baptism being submersion most closely identifies with what happens in salvation. And that's the point. Now, I believe that those who sprinkle, Protestants, many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that many are sincere. But I believe that they are incorrect regarding the mode of baptism. And I would argue that the method does matter because of the picture that baptism presents to us. 
Now let me give you two examples from the New Testament. You can turn to Mark 1.5 if you'd like. Mark 1.5 it says, And all of the country of Judea, we're speaking of John the Baptist, and all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, I don't know if any of you have, but I've had the, I've been blessed to be able to go to the Jordan River to very near the spot where Jesus was baptized. And I can promise you that the Jordan is a river. It is a river which can be fully entered and where you can be fully submerged into the water. That's important because people were coming to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. You see, they went out of their way. They went out into the wilderness to be baptized by John in the river. No sprinkling. No sprinkling. If you look down in verse 9, you see it says, In those days, this is Mark 1, 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens saying, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. So the point is, is that we see here that Jesus went into the river, into the Jordan, and, he, and it says He immediate, immediately coming up out of the water. So we see a submersion, fully immersed. That's how our Lord, that is the, the mode of baptism by our Lord, or of our Lord. Let me give you another example. In John 3.23, it says, John was also, also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, and because there was much water there, and people were coming and being baptized. So John describes this area as having much water. Why would he say that? Why would he make that point? He makes that point that there was much water there because much water is required to, to fully immerse people in the waters of baptism. You see, there is no disputing that immersion is the intended mode of baptism. But why is this the case? Well, this is the case because water immersion, the mode or method of immersion best fits the reality it represents. It best fits the reality it represents. At salvation... The believer is united with Christ in His death and resurrection. When we become believers, we are placed in Christ. We are fully immersed in Him. We've seen this over and over in our study of Ephesians, right? Do you recall Ephesians 1.3? Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, heavenly places in Christ. You see, when we become believers at salvation, we fully identify with Christ. We are fully immersed in Christ. And this is the, re this is the reality of the Christian life. You see, we have died to self, and we have been raised to new life in Christ, and only immersion symbolizes this biblical reality of death, burial, and resurrection. Going into the water is our death to self and, and burial. And coming out of the water symbolizes our resurrection and newness of life. See, immersion gives the full picture of salvation. And every time, and this is important, it's important, listen to this. Most, many of you, if not most of you, have been baptized. So you're probably in some way saying, well, I'm, you're preaching to the choir. But in reality, I want you to understand this. Every time we see someone baptized, it should remind us of our own salvation. It should remind us of the newness of life that we now live in. So as a church, 
When we see people baptized, it should be some of the sweetest times in the body of, our, in the, body of the church. Because it recalls to our minds what Christ has accomplished in cleansing us from our sins. And this is what makes these baptisms so powerful. So powerful in the life of the church. I can say Angie and I were at Grace Church where John MacArthur is at, has preached for over 50 years. And our favorite times were Sunday evenings. And the reason our favorite times were Sunday evenings, it was scaled back. But our favorite times were Sunday evening because there were usually two to three baptisms. So you would come and they would have completely transformed the stage or, or the, the, the front. And there would be a baptism uh, go, uh, the baptism will be there, and they would actually have the pulpit down, and you, they would have the baptism prior to the ser- or at, at the beginning of the service. It's a wonderful time to see people, because they would also give their testimonies, and they, they would te- testify how Christ had saved them. And many of them had come from Southern California culture, which you can only imagine how difficult that would be, and how uh, their lives were transformed by Christ. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, Baptism is a physical analogy of a profound spiritual reality. And any student of Scripture knows that God likes to teach with symbols, pictures, illustrations, parables, and analogies. You go back to the Old Testament and you will see all the, that all the major events of history, of the history of Israel, were commit, com, commemorated by an object lesson or a memorial. And all major spiritual truths were illustrated by a symbol, an analogy, or picture. These were basically four teaching aids. That's what baptism is. The person is publicly identifying as being a Christian. And those who are watching are learning and remembering. They're remembering what Christ has done. And baptism by immersion not only demonstrates your obedient heart, but it gives the church a wonderful picture of salvation. Let's look at our second question. I was going to go through the history of baptism, but I just didn't have time. So let's skip to the, the third. What is the significance of baptism and why should I be baptized? Let me start, by, start this by giving you a few reasons why a person who professes Christ uh, would not be baptized. The most obvious reason that, that people might not desire to be baptized is some folks don't desire baptism because they aren't saved. You see, they're part of the church. I mean, they're here. They're partaking, but they're not saved. So they don't desire it. Their heart doesn't desire it. They haven't been baptized in the Spirit. They haven't received the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they don't desire baptism. You see, they're not in Christ. So baptism means nothing to them outside of some religious observance. You see, they want the good things about being a part of a church, but they don't want Christ. They don't want to identify with Him publicly. They desire to be known as Christians, but they haven't taken up the cross and followed Him. Therefore, they refuse to stand before God and men, publicly proclaiming their faith in Christ. And you can only imagine if the, if the cost were higher. And I'm talking about the cost in society. Two, The second reason is some people have a lack of understanding or teaching. And that's why I'm doing this. That's why I would take time on a Sunday to to teach this, to preach this, to encourage you. This person, they, they haven't had the benefit of sound teaching. They haven't been properly taught about baptism and the importance of baptism. They don't understand then the full beauty of what we're doing when we're baptizing. It's one of the reasons, again, we... We'll periodically revisit this. The third reason. Some people are just plain prideful and defiant. In some cases, the person wasn't baptized when they were, became a believer. They, they then choose to put it off, and time passes, and therefore they, their pride increases, and they, they're too proud to raise their hand and say, I need to be baptized. They're known maybe even as a mature Christian. And they haven't been baptized, and then time has passed, and, and they don't, they're just they're too prideful to say, I need to be baptized. Doing so would be a public confession of disobedience to Christ's command. 
Or maybe they didn't understand the significance of the command early in the Christian walk, but then they're taught. But instead of responding in humble submission, they respond in pride, maybe even defiance. Responding in obedience means they would need to publicly repent of this disobedience. In the words of John MacArthur, I thought this was interesting. He said this, Would you rather be ashamed standing at the judgment seat of Christ or before the church? Would you rather be ashamed standing at the judgment seat of Christ or before the church? I hope that you would say the church, right? That you would be willing to admit that you need to be baptized. Another reason some people do not don't care to, about the command is that another reason is that some people don't care about the commands of Christ in scriptures. The scriptures they they know the truth, they fully understand the call to baptism. They know they should be baptized, but they do not care to obey. It's just not a priority for them. Now let me say this too. Again, this is why I would preach this. It's not a priority for the church either. We are called as a church to be a distinct community. Our distinctiveness comes from our desire to be obedient to the commands of Christ as a church and as individuals. And baptism is a clear command of the Lord. Baptism is clearly a priority for our Lord. If it's not a priority for you, let me say it's clearly a priority for the Lord. It is such a priority that baptism is one of only two ordinances of the church along with the Lord's table. Therefore, He expects to make us to make baptism our priority. And I don't think I'm overstating this. The simple answer to the question of whether you should be baptized is absolutely. Whether your reason is one of these or whether you have some other justification, if you are a Christian, you must respond in obedience and be baptized at the earliest opportunity. This leads us to our final question. Does baptism save us? Does baptism save us? The answer, the short answer is of course not. Of course not. Now, some folks mistakenly say that baptism produces salvation. And there are three reasons why this is not true. This teaching is contrary to the overall teaching of Scripture. We are saved solely based on faith, not by our works. And saying that salvation or that, that baptism is part of uh, salvation would mean that we're doing the work of baptism. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, We are not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2.8, It is by grace through faith that we are saved, not that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no man may boast. Therefore, then, water baptism is a fruit of salvation. It is a very important fruit, which indicates your heart. Now, some use Acts 2.38 to teach otherwise. Remember, Peter said, repent and be baptized. But we must remember that Peter is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience. They, again, we said it earlier, they risked this public ridicule and rejection for publicly identifying with Christ by being baptized in His name. Therefore, Peter challenged them to publicly proclaim their identification with Christ through baptism. Baptism was dangerous. So Peter knew that only true believers would make that public proclamation of their faith. Acts 2.38 has another grammatical possibility, though. The the Greek word translated for in the NAS and ESV can also be translated because of. Because of. The Matthew 12.41 uses the same word. And it says Jesus tells his listener that the Ninevites repented because of Jonah's preaching. Therefore, Peter was telling his listeners in Acts 2.38 to be baptized because of the forgiveness of their sins. 
And this, t- this translation would be in accord with the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Beloved, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus, you are called to be baptized, indicating because of the forgiveness of your sins. Now let me give you one other one other reason why we can say that that baptism is not part of salvation. Scripture gives an example of salvation without baptism, right? Luke 23, 42. Jesus promised salvation for the thief on the cross. He was a man who obviously was not able to be baptized before he died. He was not... He was not baptized, so salvation, that baptism can't be a part of salvation. Clearly, clearly that's not Jesus' intention. Now, this leads us to the necessity to respond to the gospel in faith and to be baptized. If you are here today, and you have placed your faith in Christ, you should be in one of two categories. You have been baptized in the local church, publicly proclaiming your faith in Christ. That's the first category. Second category, if you are a believer, you have not been baptized in the local church, but you intend to have it done as soon as possible. That's the two categories for the believer. If you are here today and you have not placed your faith in Christ, there's only one thing for you to do. As Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Christ, I beg you to look upon Him who went to the cross to die for your sins. The Lord Jesus, He bore the wrath of the Father so that you would not have to. And let me tell you something. For those of you who are living according to the world, who want to stay a part of the world, let me tell you something. The truth is, outside of Christ, you face the eternal wrath of God. He will judge you for your works. And if you are honest with yourself, you know that you do not stand a chance. I beg you, I beg you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, turn to Him. Turn to Him in saving faith. Church, I pray that you understand the significance of baptism. I hope that you will see that we are charged to make disciples and to baptize them. I pray that you will see the importance of being baptized as believers and the beauty of it. As we close, turn to Acts 8. Acts 8, verse 26. We pick up here with This is an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So we see Philip gets up and he goes and and he he sees an Ethiopian eunuch. And he was uh, returning and sitting in his chariot, verse 28. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit told Philip to go up to the chariot, and Philip went up and heard him reading the Isaiah the prophet, asking what did he understand what he's reading, and he said, "How could I unless someone guides me?" And he invited Philip to come up and sit, and we see the the passage of scripture that he was reading, and in verse thirty four, the eunuch said, "Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else?" Verse 35, let me pick up there. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. 
And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? In verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. Beloved, the clear command of Scripture is for believers to be baptized in water, signifying a public identification with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The question is, are you saved? Have you been born again of the Spirit? Then you must do what this eunuch did. Look, there is water. What prevents me from being baptized? You must be baptized. You must identify with Christ in the waters of baptism. If you are a believer in Christ, don't let time slip away. You cannot be a closet Christian. You must declare to the world that God has truly saved you. You might say, well, I don't have to be baptized to get into heaven, right? The thief on the cross didn't. We said that, saw that earlier. You may have your reasons not to be baptized. They may be legitimate like the thief, but it may reveal a prideful and defiant heart, and it may even reveal an unregenerate heart. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you won't obey Christ when it costs you very little, then do you think you're truly His? Can't be for certain, right? If you don't confess Him publicly, then you may hear these dreaded words. Depart from me, I never knew you. Let me end with this quote from John MacArthur again. He says this, Baptism does not make you holy. Baptism does not save you. Baptism does not secure you. Baptism does not provide some ongoing power. All baptism does is demonstrate your obedience and give you the joy of obedience and the blessing of obedience. End quote. And let me add, as a church, it gives us the blessing of seeing people come to Christ, of seeing the lost being found, saved. That's why we should be committed to making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, praise You, Lord Jesus, we want to see the things as important that you see important, crucial even. That's why we would take the time to go through this one more time so that we might know the importance to you, so that we might know the beauty of the picture that you give us. Lord, if there are anyone here that don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you. pray that they would call out to Christ. That they would make Christ their all. That they would want and desire to be in Christ. That they would live for Christ. I pray for the believer here that they would identify not as black or white or Asian or whatever other identity that we might have in this world. But we would 
that we would not identify according to the flesh, but that we would identify in Christ. And that starts, Lord, with publicly identifying with You in baptism. Father, I pray that we would be committed to these things. In Christ's name, Amen.